Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Lizard Wellbeing Show. I have just had the real pleasure of chatting to Matthew Walker, the Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology at UC Berkeley and the Director of its prestigious Sleep and Neuroimaging Lab. He has dedicated his academic career to uncovering the secrets of sleep and in recent years has turned his eye to the general public, publishing his book, Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams, in an attempt to bring renewed attention to this often so overlooked pillar of health. I thoroughly enjoyed reading his book while on holiday last year, and readers of the magazine will know it even inspired one of my regular Live Well for Longer columns. Ever since then, I have been so looking forward to sharing the science of sleep here on the podcast too. And I'm really hoping that you'll share in my newfound appreciation for how busily our bodies are working to strengthen, protect and heal our tissues and so much more while we are fast asleep. Please do head over to Instagram after the show because I'd love to hear your thoughts on all this and more. It's completely fascinating and I am sure will encourage us all to a longer and better night's sleep. So without any further ado, let's hear it from Professor Walker. So thank you so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure to um, to talk to you, even if it is over the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> oh, it's a delight to be with you, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Whereabouts are you? Where are you talking to us from? So I am talking to you from um, Berkeley in California, which is um, a smaller city just outside of San Francisco um, on the um, in Northern California. And that's near the university, is it, where you're based? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, okay. And as you can tell, I'm not from originally from California. Um, I'm uh, I was born and raised in Liverpool. So. Ah, and you went to uni in the UK, is that right? You still started. I did. I did. Yeah, all of my background education was there. Um, I went to university at Nottingham. Um, I was at the Queen's Medical Centre there, and uh, I ended up uh, moving towards neuroscience, uh, brain science. And then I went and did a PhD that was funded by the Medical Research Council in London. And I conducted that PhD up north. Um, at the University of Newcastle studying different types of dementia um, and then I headed off to America 
where I got my first faculty position. Absolutely fantastic. And how did you come to specialise in sleep as a neuroscientist? What was it about kind of switching the brain off that fascinated you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think all of the sleep researchers that I know were all accidental sleep researchers. Um, none of us really sort of made that trajectory um, determined in our minds to begin with. You know, it's unlike kids when you're five or six and people say, okay, what would you like to be when you grow up? And the hands shoot up and you go around and I'd like to be a police officer, an astronaut, or, you know, yeah. chef, or no one says I'd love to be a sleep researcher. <laughs> um, and um, I was an accidental uh, sleep researcher too. When I was doing my PhD, I was trying to differentially diagnose people with different types of dementia. And I was looking at their brainwave patterns, their electrical brainwave activity, and I was getting no good results year after year. I was failing miserably. Um, and then I was reading a lot of literature. I'd go home to sort of the doctor's residence and I'd have this little, uh, in my room, this little igloo of, of journal papers that at the weekend I would read, um, <laughs> can see how wonderfully social I was as a, <laughs> as a student. Um, and I realized that these mm -hmm. dementias, some of them will eat away at the sleep generating regions of the brain whereas others would leave those sleep-generating regions untouched. And I thought, well, my goodness, I'm studying um, my patients at the wrong time. I'm measuring them while they're awake instead of when they're asleep. So I started to record brainwave activity when they were asleep, I got some great results, then started to realize no one, uh, that was 20 years ago, <laughs> no one uh, back then could actually uh, give you an answer to a fundamentally simple question. Why do we sleep? Yeah. And so I thought, well, yeah. that would be a great next question to address. And then I'll come back to the dementia question. And I didn't realize without any hubris or arrogance that some of the most brilliant scientific minds had tried to answer the question, why do we sleep for their entire careers and had failed. And I thought I was going to do it within just one or two years. Um, and what I realized is that hard questions care very little about who asks them they will meter out their lessons of difficulty all the same. And I have been schooled in the difficulty of the question of why we sleep. That was 20 years ago, and I am still answering that question. But now, in truth, is we have to change that question. You know, we used to say, well, the reason that we sleep is to cure sleepiness. <laughs> and that tells you nothing about the no, exactly. benefits of sleep. You know, that's like saying, well, we eat, to cure hunger. That tells you nothing about the nutritional benefits of food. The same way with sleep. But now, 20 years later, based on research of all of my colleagues, we've had to upend the question. Now we have to ask, is there any fundamental process of the brain or any physiological system in, the, in your body that doesn't wonderfully benefit from sleep when you get it mm. or become demonstrably impaired when you don't get enough? And the answer seems to be no. So really, in answering your question, why do we sleep? We sleep because every bit of our body requires it for whatever reason. That's right. And when you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it has to be that way. Because sleep is the most idiotic of all inventions. Mm. You know, when you're asleep, firstly, you're not reproducing. You're not finding a mate. You're not caring for your young. You're not finding food. And worst of all, you're vulnerable to predation. Yeah. 
So on any one of those grounds, but especially as a collective, sleep should have been strongly selected against during the evolutionary process. Yeah, you would have thought that we'd actually sleep less now because we would have found other ways to, you know, give ourselves nutrition, right. rest or repair in, in other ways. Correct. In fact, yeah. We're just highlighting the importance of it. We actually probably need to be sleeping more, do we? Well, I think the idea would be that, you know, if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, then it's the biggest mistake the evolutionary process has ever made. <laughs> um, and what we're realizing now is that Mother Nature did not make a spectacular blunder in creating this thing called sleep. In fact, sleep is your life support system. It is probably Mother Nature's best effort yet at immortality. And from what we know, it acts like the Swiss army knife of health. Um, you know, whatever ailment you have in the brain or the body, sleep probably has a tool in its box that will help. That is really quite extraordinary, isn't it? That it is so important and yet so overlooked. And, and I think it's interesting, mm. isn't it, during these times of the pandemic, that sleep, I think, is perhaps being prioritized a little bit more. We're, we're connected <laughs> with our immune system, with reducing stress levels, which are sort of stratospheric for so many of us. And yet, perversely, yeah. we're finding it perhaps harder to sleep because of worry and anxiety. Does, do, mm -hmm. do these worries and anxieties really lead to, to less sleep? And if so, why would that be? So, yeah, great questions. So let me just take the, the sleep and immune uh, question first. Um, it is on our minds ever more so now, immunity and, uh, and developing that. Um, there is a very intimate relationship between your sleep health and your immune health. So often when we get sick, all we want to do is curl up in bed and try to sleep ourselves well. Mm. And we now know the evidence underlying that. So firstly, what we know is that individuals who report getting less than seven hours of sleep a night are three times more likely to become infected by the rhinovirus, which is the wow. common cold. We also know that women sleeping five hours or less a night are 70% more likely to develop pneumonia, which is a respiratory disorder, which is a key part of COVID. Um, we also know that sleep plays a critical role in the success of your immunization. So one study um, took a group of perfectly healthy individuals and they limited them to four hours of sleep a night for six nights. And then they gave them a flu shot. And they compared that to another group that had been getting a full eight hours of sleep a night. And what they found is that those people who essentially um, were short sleeping for just uh, the week before they get their flu shot, they produced less than 50% of the normal antibody response to that flu shot, therefore rendering that immunization far less effective. So oh in other God. words, if you're- I, I, I hope you're talking, talking to governments right now about this. <laughs> Well, you know, we've been we've been trying to sort of lobby that uh, for a, for a long time, but ultimately, I think it's going to be that we will get a vaccine for COVID. I, I'm I'm fairly sure of that. What we as sleep scientists then need to do is ask the question: Is that same profile of sleep necessity um, for success of COVID immunization true as it is for your flu shot? And if it is. What do we do about that? Because then sleep is going to become a critical part of the COVID immunization equation. And we've got great technology now. You know, we've got people wearing things or you could track your sleep with a log. Yeah. And, 
you know, your healthcare provider, the NHS could say, hey, look, based on your sleep last week, it doesn't seem to be quite there yet. I know you've got an appointment coming up. Let's push it until next week. Let's give you some tips for better sleep. And then here are three appointments next week. Which one do you want for your COVID immunization? And let's get your sleep straight first. We can do lots of intelligent things now, but those are just some of the ways that sleep is related to our immunity. And I, I hope impresses on people how critical that relationship is. And by the way, if you turn that around and you say, well, what happens when you do get sleep? Mm. What we know firstly is that sleep will actually restock all of the weaponry in your immune arsenal so that you wake up the next day a more robust immune individual. It produces immune factors. But secondly, and most recently what we've discovered is that it's not just that you produce more of these sort of immune weapons, but your body becomes increasingly more sensitive to those immune signals. So the sort of the receptor sensitivity, as it were, to those immune factors increases when you've been getting good sleep. So on both sides of the immune equation, the production of it and your body's reception of those factors, you are much better having slept. So that's sleep and immunity. Happy to dive into sleep, COVID and anxiety, but mm -hmm. let me pause there and see if there's any further questions on immunity. Well, that is really fascinating. And one of the words that you said there that I want to come back to and pick you up on is good, good sleep. So mm. do you, how do you qualify good sleep and how can we tell? Is it just the number of hours that we have? What, what makes sleep good or less good? So sleep is not just about duration. Um, duration is a big part of that equation, but it's necessary yet not sufficient. What you also need is not just good quantity of sleep, you need good quality of sleep. And let me try to define those two. Good quantity of sleep based on recommendations that we have right now, for example, the CDC here in America recommends that you need a minimum of seven hours of sleep duration a night. And our recommendation right now is somewhere between seven to nine hours. And there's definitely variability that mm -hmm. some people can sort of get by on just seven hours. Others will need, you know, eight and three quarter hours. There's definitely variability there that I want to acknowledge that's important. But it's not just about duration. It's not just about quantity. What we've learned in the past five or so years in sleep research is that quality is as important. And here you can define quality in several different ways. The first way we define quality is how consistent is your sleep? How unbroken is your sleep? So in other words, are you waking up a lot during the night? Are you spending a lot of time awake throughout the night? Typically, that's not good quality of sleep. It needs to be more continuous, what we call consolidated sleep. Whereas if you have fragmented sleep, that's poor quality of sleep. The second version of good quality of sleep is about the electrical depth of that sleep. So when we measure those electrical brainwaves during sleep, um, there are lots of different stages of sleep. And when you go into the deeper stages of sleep, what we call non-rapid eye movement sleep, the deeper the sleep or electrically from uh, the brainwave patterns, the bigger and the more powerful those slow brainwaves of deep sleep are, that seems to be better electrical quality of sleep at night as well. And then the final thing is the composition of your sleep. 
are you getting enough deep sleep? And also, are you getting enough uh, what we call rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep? It's the stage of sleep during which we dream. So you can define quality of sleep, both in terms of, um, is it fragmented or continuous? Is the electrical quality of that sleep good? And also, what is the sort of the um, cocktail ratio? So if you're going to make a sort of a good sleep cocktail, you know, mm -hmm. is it uh, two parts this and one part that and a jigger of this? Well, it's also about that quality too. So it's not just quantity, it's also quality. Interesting that you talk about um, the having the continuity of sleep patterns. So if, for example, you have a disrupted night, you know, or you're up late working, you've got, you know, work stresses or exam pressures, or you're a new mom or mm. something like that, that, that's disrupting your sleep. Can you, can you catch up later? Can you bank sleep knowing that you're going to have a bad night's sleep in a couple of days time? Can you kind of get ahead of the game or can you catch up? Um, can you catch up on sleep? Uh, it's a lovely idea, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to be true that in that way, sleep is not like the bank. So you can't, <laughs> right, you can't accumulate a debt and then hope to pay it off at a later point in time, like the weekend. Um, and so for example, if I took you Liz and tonight I deprive you of sleep for the entire night. So you've lost eight hours of sleep. And then I give you all of the recovery sleep that you want on a second night, a third night, even a fourth, fourth night. Will you sleep longer? Yes, you will. But will you get back all of that eight hours of sleep that you lost? The answer is no. In fact, mm. you'll usually get back less than 50% of that. Oh and goodness. so we can ask the question, why is this? Why hasn't you know evolution developed a sleep bank system because mm -hmm. there is precedent for this in biology. It's called the adipose cell or the fat cell because during our evolutionary past, we faced famine and we went through feast. And the body realized this and decided to create this fat cell so that we could store up caloric credit when we had it. And then when we went into famine, we could spend that caloric credit. Where is the fat cell for sleep in the brain? Mm. And the answer is we don't have one. And the reason is because human beings seem to be the only species that will deliberately deprive themselves of sleep for no apparent good reason. <laughs> in other words, mother nature throughout the course of our evolutionary past across these millions of years, she has never had to face the challenge of solving sleep deprivation. So she's never come up with a solution. There is no safety net in place. That's why we implode so quickly and so dramatically when we don't get enough sleep. Wow. Now, is there a variability with our genes? You talk about seven to nine hours. Is, is there a kind of a genetic variance there that some people will naturally thrive on seven hours or they will mm. nine hours? There is. And we're starting to understand those genes. In fact, there are a couple of um, mutants, um, uh, short sleeping mutants out there that we now know of. Uh, we know of about uh, two or three different flavors um, with different genes underlying those um, different flavors. Um, probably one of the best known ones is a gene called the DEC2, D-E-C2 gene. And if you take these people uh, with this short sleeping gene and you bring them into a sleep center like uh, the one that we have here at uh, my university, the University of California, Berkeley, 
and we take away the phone and we don't give you any access to light. You say goodbye to your family and friends and we just have you sleep as much as you like naturalistically. You can just sleep however you naturally want to. They seem to end up needing only about six hours and 15 minutes of sleep if you give them that chance. And so, and they don't seem to show any impairment on sort of cognitive tests, et cetera. They genuinely seem to be functioning on six hours and 15 minutes. Um, now, by the way, this is not what many people think of, which is, you know, the Margaret Thatcher who could was supposed yes. to survive on, you know, just four hours of sleep a night or Ronald Reagan the same. Um, and by the way, we should come on to the relationship between sleep and Alzheimer's disease yes, because absolutely. often Thatcher and Reagan are both quoted to me as people saying, well, they got away, you know, with, you know, just short sleeping. Well, tragically, both of them went on to develop uh, Alzheimer's disease and die from it. Um, now, that's not scientific. Um, that's just, you know, case study. But coming back to your question, um, these short sleeping genetic mutants, we definitely know of them. Um, how common is it? Well, unfortunately, it's not common. Most people now are thinking who are listening to this, oh, maybe I'm one of those short mm. genetic mutants, uh, sleeping mutants. Um, the, the probability that you are one of those is very low. In fact, it's much more likely that you will be struck by lightning in your lifetime statistically than it is that you would be one of those short sleeping mutants. Right. Okay. So note to self, definitely prioritize sleep. And in fact, one of the, the things I noticed in your absolutely brilliant book was about setting the alarm. And you say that you don't set an alarm to wake up in the morning. You set an alarm to tell you to go to bed. It's time to sleep. I thought that was just brilliant. It's so simple and yet so helpful. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, one of the tips that we can come on to um, for better sleep tonight is regularity, going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time. And it's no, it's no problem to have a wake up alarm. Um, even though in truth, I would say that you probably don't need it. If you are giving yourself the right amount of sleep opportunity time, at first you will oversleep because you'll try to get back that which you've lost. It's sort of, um, you know, you're sort of binging on sleep and that's what people worry about. Oh my goodness, I'm going to sleep past it and I'll get into work late. But after about three or four days of washing out that's that chronic sleep um, debt that you've been carrying, you actually come back and you start to sleep really very reasonable numbers of hours. But for regularity's purpose, going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time is good. So having alarms on both of those sides, but you're right, you know, we often set an alarm to wake up but none of us really set an alarm to go to bed and it's always yeah. perplexed me as to why why we don't do that yeah it's 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 really key and it's something that's hugely helped me and i think also what really helped me after reading your book was, was about the regularity and not thinking i'm going to binge on sleep at the weekend it's the weekend i'm going to have a lion i'm going to sleep till you know nine o'clock on a saturday morning instead of having to get up at quarter to seven and actually now i have reset the regularity and i do i mean i wake up at naturally sort of just before seven every day of the week and i used to get really, <laughs> you know i used to feel quite you know fed up at the beginning thinking you know why this is such a waste because i've got all this time now and i could have an extra hour or so in bed but actually do you know what i don't actually feel like it i just i feel i'm refreshed and and it's enough to go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time. It's so important what you just said about this notion of waste, because sleep has an image problem in society that we think of people who get sufficient sleep as 
either slothful or were still lazy. Mm. And, you know, the data is very clear. When I ask people sort of, you know, why, now this is different to insomnia. If you're suffering from insomnia, that's very different. You probably are giving yourself the right amount of sleep opportunity, but you actually just can't get the sleep that you need. Um, but for other people who are not getting the sleep that they need, it's mostly because they don't have insomnia. They just don't give themselves the chance to get the sleep that they need. And when I say why, well, it's, you know, it's because I'm so busy. I've got all of these things to do. My work is very stressful. I've got a lot to do at work. And what the data is very clear on this, that less sleep does not equal more productivity. It's actually the opposite. Right. So the idea would be, you know, why would you, um, boil a pot of water on medium heat when you could do it in half the time on high. And that's what a full night of sleep is. Mm. And so when I'm thinking about tomorrow and getting to bed early, I'm not looking at today and thinking, well, what is the cost of going to bed at the right time? So I get my full eight and a half hour sleep opportunity. You know, why couldn't I just stay up an extra hour and work? I don't see it like that. Instead, I flip it around and I say, well, getting the sleep that I need tonight is an investment right. for tomorrow so that I'm going to be ultra productive tomorrow. And I'm not going to get caught in this loop of being, you know, always in the red with my work productivity. So I think we need to shift our mindset away from sleep as a cost to instead sleep as an investment in terms of work productivity. Yeah, a real a real business asset, if you like. I, I, sleep is probably the greatest form of physiological injected venture capital that any business could ever <laughs> wish for. Um, and the, as I said, the data is absolutely um, there. You just can't get around it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I was particularly struck, actually, by your research into the links between sleep deprivation and insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. You, you, you outline it in your book very clearly. Can you explain that a little bit? 
Yes. So when we um, take on a meal, when we eat a meal, um, what typically happens is that our blood sugar levels, our blood glucose levels start to rise. But high levels of blood sugar for sustained periods of time are a very bad thing. And um, they're one of the uh, key hallmarks underlying type 2 diabetes. Um, high blood sugar can be actually quite toxic for the body. And the way that we prevent that normally if we're healthy is that the body senses these high levels of blood sugar and it releases something called insulin, which many people have heard of. And insulin then being released into the bloodstream races around the body and it tells the cells of the body, okay, it's time for you to sort of pull out your sugar straws and suck in that sugar, that glucose from the bloodstream into uh, the cells. And if you do that quickly, you prevent a blood sugar spike. The problem with a lack of sleep is that it will disrupt your blood sugar regulation on both sides of that equation. And what I mean by that is, if you take otherwise perfectly healthy individuals and you short sleep them for just one week and you look at their blood sugar levels, their blood sugar is so disrupted that at that point, if they went to their GP, they would be classified as being pre-diabetic after just one week of short sleep. Wow. And the reason is because when you are not getting enough sleep, firstly, your body fails to release enough insulin into the body. So the signal for your body that says, oh my goodness, we've got high blood sugar, it's time to absorb that sugar from the body, that signal of insulin is decreased, it's impaired, it's blunted. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the cells of the body that normally listen for the signal of insulin and then start to absorb that blood sugar, those receptors, those uh, sort of listening devices for insulin also are decreased by a lack of sleep. So not only are you failing to release enough insulin, what little insulin you do release when you are not sleeping well is not heard, quote unquote, as it were, by the body as well. And so overall, your body stops absorbing that um, toxic blood sugar anywhere near as efficiently as it would do when you are very well slept. And this is why we now know that insufficient sleep seems to not just be associated with your risk of type 2 diabetes, but is actually a causal factor in both the, de uh, the development of type 2 diabetes and also the maintenance of type 2 diabetes. That's really extraordinary. So our doctors should really be giving us a sleep prescription if we go in with, with insulin issues. They should certainly be asking about how much sleep that you get, and it should be part of the prescription equation. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, it's, I think sleep should be just generally asked, you know, every time you go to your GP for your checkup, um, sleep should be one of those questions on the list. And it's not. Um, and despite, you know, we often think of trying to nudge, you know, let's get better cardiovascular health and do this and let's get better, you know, blood sugar regulation to do this and let's sort of, you know, improve your weight to do this. And we're trying to sort of do all of these things individually when we forget that sleep is the tide that raises all of these other health boats. You know, mm -hmm. it's the Archimedes lever. And I just wish that 
um, we could help doctors better understand this. Why don't they? It's not their fault. Because um, we and others have looked at uh, a majority of first world nation medical curricula around the world. And what we found is that on average, most doctors will only receive about one to 1.5 hours of education regarding sleep in the years of medical training, despite it being one third of the patient's lives spent <laughs> in that state. And furthermore, that one third of their life spent asleep has such a dramatic impact on the two thirds of their life that they spend awake. awake. Um, so it's not the doctor's fault either. So I wish I could work with um, people like the NHS to create just a very simple, you know, two or three simple questions that you would always ask at the checkup mm -hmm. and then have a triage mechanism from there. Mm. Interesting talking about um, metabolism and, and blood sugars. So for those looking to shift a few pounds, perhaps a few of the lockdown pounds that are following us around at the moment, sleep really is, is a massive ally. I mean, can we literally sleep ourselves slimmer? Um, to a, a degree, I, I don't know if I would state it like that, but certainly um, sleep is your ally in that regard. And I can walk you through the many different ways it is. When you are firstly not getting enough sleep, your hunger hormones become disrupted in ways that you wish they didn't. So there are two critical hunger hormones that regulate your appetite. One is called leptin. The other is called ghrelin. And I often joke, they sound like hobbits, but they're not. I promise you they're actually real. Uh, yeah, they're real hormones. Now, leptin is the hormone that signals the fact that you are satisfied with your meal, you're full, and you don't want to eat anymore. Mm. Whereas ghrelin does the opposite. It says, no, you're not satisfied with the food that you've just eaten. You are still hungry. Please eat more. Now, if you take individuals who are of perfectly normal weight or even overweight, and then you sleep deprive them. You don't sleep deprive them for a night, you just kind of take away an hour or two each night in the morning and the evening for a week. What we find is that those hunger hormones go in the bad direction. Firstly, leptin, which is the signal of satiety that says you're full, you don't want to eat anymore. That is blunted, that's impaired and decreased when you're not getting sufficient sleep. So you lose the satisfaction feeling with food. That's the hormone that goes away. Worse still, ghrelin, which is the hunger generating hormone, that actually increases. And so overall, when you are underslept, you are about uh, somewhere between 20 to 30% more hungry overall. And when you give people the chance then to eat at a finger buffet, an ad lib finger buffet, they will typically eat anywhere between um, two to 400 extra calories every single day when they're, they're not getting sufficient sleep, which that if is you add it up is, is dramatic across a year. But what we've also discovered is that it's not just um, that you eat more, you eat more of the things that are typically obesogenic. So you typically stay away from things like protein and what you go towards is the heavy hitting stodgy carbohydrates sort yeah. of you know the breads and the pastas but also simple sugars yeah. um sort of chocolate ice cream these are the things that your body craves now by the way people will say well but when you're awake at night 
aren't you burning more calories? Well, a little bit, but it turns out that sleep is a very metabolically active process. So it's, you don't really burn very much more. But even if you do burn a few more calories when you are sort of sleeping less and awake longer, it is by no means, um, ex- you are no, by no means expending the calories that you are eating yeah. uh, to excess. So you are always in a calorie surplus. You are always overeating in terms of your metabolic profile. So that's the first way that a lack of sleep can catch you out. The second, we've done work with brain scanning, where we've put people into the brain scanner. And what we find is that when you are not getting sufficient sleep, the deep hedonic pleasure centers of the brain respond far more reactively to pleasurable foods like ice cream and chocolate. Um, Whereas the regulatory regions of the brain, the parts of your brain that we call the prefrontal cortex, that keep those sort of impulsive deep brain structures in check, they are impaired by a lack of sleep. So in other words, you become much more impulsive around your food choices. In other words, you can't trust your brain around food when you're not getting sufficient sleep. You will then be reaching for that next slice of pizza rather than some healthy greens and, you know, some macadamia nuts. Um, (laughs) And the final thing I would note, by the way, or maybe two things, um, we also know that when you are trying to implement a diet and you are dieting and trying to lose weight, but you're not getting sufficient sleep, that diet will not be effective because 70% of the weight that you lose on a diet when you are not getting sufficient sleep comes from lean muscle mass rather than fat. In other words, when you're not getting sufficient sleep, you hold on to what you want to lose, which is fat, and you give up what you want to keep, which is muscle. And so that's the other way that a lack of sleep will catch you out. The final thing I would note is that when you are getting sufficient sleep, you end up exercising much more intensely. So if you go and do any form of physical activity, when you've been getting good sleep, the intensity with which you do that, and therefore the caloric... um, a challenge that you pose to your body is always going to be higher than when you're not getting sufficient sleep. So does that sort of help? I know that that's a, a yeah, long monologue, oh Liz. I'm desperately sorry. Does that help sort of explain that relationship? It, it I mean, it, it's so fascinating. And I'm sure like everybody listening are going to be joining me in absolutely putting sleep to the, the front of the priority list, you know, particularly when we talk about immunity, brain health, uh, weight loss, it, it is extraordinary. Are there any hacks, if you like? Are there any shortcuts or quick fixes? Can we take any supplements, for example, to help with the, the depth and the quality of sleep? We, people I know are talking about magnesium, for example, at the moment to help with anxiety and sleep. Are, are there any things like that that can be extra assets to help? Sadly, we we really haven't found any supplements that are, you know, the um, the gold standard hack for getting better sleep. Um, There's very mixed evidence regarding things like uh, magnesium. Um, You know, the herbal teas, there's no good evidence there. Um, if, If it was the case that there was a simple supplement out there that could supercharge your sleep, it would have been latched onto by a pharmaceutical company long ago and people would be making millions from it. The fact- What about sleeping pills uh, though? 
Yeah, so sleeping pills, unfortunately, um, they don't produce naturalistic sleep, at least the ones that the majority of the ones that we use right now. Um, there are a class of drugs that we call the sedative hypnotics. And so what these drugs typically do is sedate the brain rather than necessarily produce naturalistic sleep. Um, if you are struggling with sleep, um, you don't necessarily need to turn to those medications. Now, there are a time and a place for sleeping pills. We typically recommend that they are used for a very short period of time for um, acute insomnia, but they're not recommended for long-term, um, for weeks and weeks or months on end, certainly uh, not months on end or any longer than that. Instead, what people should turn to is something called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI. It is a psychological intervention. Um, it is being demonstrated to be just as effective for, um, as sleeping pills in the short term. But what's great is that when you stop working with your therapist, and usually it takes sort of four or five weeks of, of um, sessions with a therapist, not only do you maintain your sleep benefit, but it persists for years on end. Whereas if you stop taking sleeping pills, you mm. typically go back to the bad sleep that you are having, or if anything, it's actually even worse. It's called rebound insomnia. Um, so if people want to learn a little bit more about um, uh, CBTI, you can sort of read about it uh, on the NHS website. Um, I actually um, uh, have uh, an, um, uh, an advisor to a company um, called Shuni, it's S-H-U-N-I dot I-O. So shuni.io, mm -hmm. and that will give you some uh, great information about um, what CBTI is and how you can get help with that. Um, it's a virtual platform, so you know you can get coaching on on Brilliant. your sleep anywhere in the world, um, and that's the benefit now, I think. And people with yeah. Zoom, the explosion of Zoom, they're much more comfortable in trying to receive you know mental health and now sleep health online. Yeah. So. It is available there to you. Um, if you want a CBTI, you can speak to your doctor about it. You don't have to go to the tashuni.io. Uh, to I just mentioned mm -hmm. that if, if it's of use, um, you can go and speak to your doctor um, and the NHS should be providing you solutions for that. That's really interesting. I have to say that as somebody going or had gone through the perimenopause, that the first mm, sign yes. that I had of, of my lowering estrogen levels was when my sleep was disrupted. And exactly, you know, I can yeah. do a lot of things, but when my sleep goes, that you know, that's when the wheels do definitely fall off, fall off, my, yeah. off my wagon big time. And since replacing estrogen, I find that my sleep is just so much better. Are you exactly, are you looking yeah. at estrogen? What what's what's the effect there for midlife women particularly? Yeah, you know, and there's you know, there's been a lot of discussion about um, sort of hormone supplementation and sort of the, the the upsides of it, the downsides of it. But sleep is very much one of those things that um, a vast majority of women will experience a sleep disruption when they're going through um, the menopausal window. Yeah. Um, and with hormone supplementation, we typically find that sleep normalizes back exactly as you described too, yeah. and that can be huge because. You know, one of the other aspects that can be disrupted is just your mood, that yeah. your emotional and mental health becomes unbuckled when you're going through that uh, yeah. period, um, so understandably. But the fact that sleep is essential to your emotional and mental health, sleep is a form of emotional first aid, and that your sleep is disrupted. And when you normalize it through hormone replacement, that yeah. mood typically is improved it may suggest that one piece, one missing piece of the explanatory puzzle 
of mood-related changes during menopause is actually the disruption of sleep. So it's menopause causing disruption of sleep, and it's the sleep disruption that causes some of the mood impairment. And if you correct uh, the, the, the hormone balance and you correct sleep, you can correct some of the mood. That's really, really fascinating. Other things that have a more negative effect on sleep, obviously, are things like caffeine. Presumably, we should be really careful of our caffeine consumption kind of after tea time. Uh, I would say after lunch. Um, Really? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so caffeine is... um, it's probably a little bit misunderstood. Everyone knows that caffeine is an alerting uh, substance. Um, And caffeine is in a class of drugs that we call the psychoactive stimulants. Uh, So everyone knows that it wakes them up, but probably one of the other two things that people don't realize, firstly, is the duration of action. So caffeine has what we call a half-life of about five to six hours in the average adult. So in other words, um, if you have a cup of coffee at noon, um, about 50% of that is still circulating in your system by around 6 p.m. in the evening. Caffeine, therefore, has a quarter life of about 10 to 12 hours. So in other words, if you have a cup of coffee at you know, noon or 2 p.m., it would be the equivalent of getting into bed and just before you turn the light out, you swig a quarter of a cup of Starbucks and you hope for a good night of sleep. And it's probably not going to happen. (laughs) So try to be a little bit mindful of your caffeine. Mm. Caffeine can also block your deep sleep. So many people will say to me, look, I can have an espresso with dinner and I fall asleep and I stay asleep. So there's no problem. Well, the issue is that even if that's true, caffeine can actually make your sleep more shallow. So you don't go down into that deep sleep. And then you wake up the next day and you don't remember having a hard time falling asleep. You don't remember waking up but you don't feel restored by your sleep. And now you find yourself reaching for two or three cups of coffee rather than one. And so goes this vicious cycle. So I, I do want to say, however, that you, it's, there's no problem in having caffeine. Um, have caffeine in the morning, that's great. Mm. When it comes to caffeine, the dose and the timing make the poison. So try to cut yourself off after about noon or 2 p.m., and try not to have more than sort of, you know, three cups of coffee. At that point, um, you know, the balance shifts. But in fact, if anything, if you look at the data, having a little bit of caffeine, a uh, few cups of coffee a day is actually very good for your health. Yeah, but it's about when you time that that's yeah. important. So I want to embrace the idea of caffeine and say it's good, but it's good at the right time in the right dose. Mm. Now, lastly, before you go, I, I have to ask you as the mother of teens, is there anything that we can do to encourage our younger people to sleep better and more to get them into bed? Is it, is it a case of having to get them into bed earlier or are they sort of biologically programmed to stay up all night and sleep in? It's actually the latter. Yeah. So we know this, um, that as you go through um, that adolescent phase, your 24 hour clock Uh, what we call your circadian rhythm, um, actually shifts forward in time. So now you want to go to bed later and you want to wake up later. And so it's not your teenager's fault that, you know, they don't like getting up at (laughs) seven o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning. Because for them, waking up at, let's say, you know, 6.30 in the morning to get to school, you know, so early would be the equivalent of asking you, Liz, to wake up at, let's say, 4.30 or 5.30 in the morning, uh, probably more like 4.30 in the morning, 
and act with good grace, have a positive, happy mood <laughs> and sit down and in front of a teacher, start learning voraciously like a sponge in terms of your absorption. Right. It's just not going to happen. If you do that, and we know the data from early school start times and the problems, you're just trying to educate your children amnesic. They right. are like a leaky sieve in terms of retention of information when they're not getting sufficient sleep. And so I think what when you fight biology, you normally lose. And the way that you know you've lost is through disease, sickness, and impairment. And so if we constantly fight teenage biology, they will lose. And I think that, you know, there's been a policy in the United Kingdom to suggest that we start schools no later than 10 o'clock in the morning. And if yeah. you look at the data, that's where it's at. Now, I understand that that comes with, it's not just about some scientists being righteous on, you know, a podcast on, on wellness and well-being. Um, there are real practical implications. Well, I need to be at work at 8.30 in the morning. I've got to get my kids to school. Yeah. So how do you solve that equation, Mr. Scientist, you know, with your, your chest beating all about the importance of sleep? So I'm not saying it's easy and I'm desperately sympathetic to the complex and pragmatic challenge that yeah. our later school start times. But that being said, you know, we put people on the moon. So mm -hmm. I think we can solve this. Yeah. And, and cut them a bit of slack in the meantime, those yes. teams. <laughs> yeah, because when they sleep in late at the weekend, what they're doing is trying to sleep off a debt that we've desperately saddled them with because of um, too early school start times during the week. It's not their fault. It's all our fault, as always. Parents, always to blame. Well, it's not, you know, it's not parents' fault either because they don't understand that. You know, yeah. it's, it's the fault of, uh, it's my fault because I have not adequately communicated to the public and parents how sleep works. And that was one of the reasons that I wrote the book and why I tried yeah. to continue to do public advocacy. I have been um, desperately, you know, anemic in my communication abilities to the public. So it's not parents' fault. And in fact, what we know is that if you ask parents of teenagers, what proportion of parents think that their teenagers are getting enough sleep? 70% of them say they, they think their teens are getting enough sleep. When in reality, less than 15% of their teenagers are actually getting the sleep that they need. So there is a mismatch here yes. uh, in terms of sleep knowledge. And what happens because of that mismatch is a parent to child transmission of sleep neglect. That parents go in at the weekend, they pull the covers off, they pull the curtains open, they yes. say, you're wasting the weekend, you're wasting the day. And then, you know, 15, 20 years later, that teenager now with their own children does exactly the same thing to their teenagers. You know, we need to break the vicious cycle. Well, hopefully you have helped us to break it. And I have to say, it's so fascinating to talk to you and you are doing oh, amazing you. work. And seriously, you are a man of our time. And thank you so much. Oh, I don't know about that, but I'm just someone who's communicating the science of all of my colleagues. And um, I am so grateful for all of the work that they do and and that gives me the chance to speak about the work so if i said i did something during this podcast what i meant is we did something yeah. and if i say we did something i mean they did something <laughs> uh, so please i'm not i don't take any of the credit i stand on the shoulders of giants oh, um i'm well. just someone uh, who's out there trying to communicate the science 
To That's the very gracious. And thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You're so very welcome. Thank you for having me on and uh, now being a sleep ambassador yourself, Liz. So thank you very much indeed. And that's it for today's episode. Wasn't it so good? Well, as always, you will find all the links and resources mentioned on today's show over on lizardwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter. It is jam-packed with more tips for better sleep, how to live a long, healthy and happier life. Huge thanks to all of you who've left us such lovely reviews, especially on iTunes. It really does help others to find the show. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, with production by Amaryllis Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, guest booker, Millie de la Moronière, and assistant researcher, Martha Cormerford. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.